Let's go through every single package installed on a Linux install DVD, specifically Slackware 14.2. Um, of course, these are all open source packages that I'm talking about on this show, so they probably can still apply to you, even if you're not running Slackware and even if you're not running Linux. These are open source packages, so you can download the source code and run them on any computer, whether you're running Linux, Mac, Windows, BSD, doesn't matter. You can learn probably something from this episode. So let's get started. Next is Python Setup Tools. Python Setup Tools is a packaging system for Python, and it is some, it's one of those things that I looked at a long time ago. I don't know, I mean, it has changed a lot. When I looked at it, I found it exceedingly confusing, and I kind of walked away from it with, with the idea that I, I would probably never really go back to it. I, I just felt like that was going to be... That was the end of setup tools for me because it was just so confusing. And as I say, I don't know if it was just because at the time I didn't understand what I needed to understand to grasp setup tools or whether it has improved and changed so much now that now that I've gone back to it, it, it makes a lot of sense. It's so easy. It's embarrassingly easy, in fact. This is an important thing, This the packaging, the delivery of your application. I spoke about this little bit in a previous episode about how I'd, I'd looked at Groovy and thought that Groovy was really groovy, sorry. It was this scripting front end sort of to Java, so it had Java syntax and it had compatibility or integration rather with Java. It seemed really appealing to me and, and I quite liked it. I really did. I enjoyed the syntax. But then when I got around to trying to deliver the little application that I'd created, I found that it was just not easy. It wasn't fun. It was not something that I felt confident that I could do frequently or that I would want to do frequently, that it would be easy to, to deliver the application. And by delivering an application, I mean you, you, you have applicate, you have a code, you have code, a code base, you have an application that you want to send out to people. And I mean, in any developer's mind, or maybe not any, but in many developers' mind, you want that process to be easy. Generally, you want it to be repeatable for yourself, because you don't want to have to remember everything that you that, that you have to do every single time you make a release. Because, I mean, today that's easy. You know, you can spend the day making a release and posting it on the internet. Maybe tomorrow you can do that. But in three years from now, or a year, or a month, you're not going to want to go through a day-long process of, of bundling up your code. You know, the first time you do it, it feels kind of special, kind of wrapping this present for a friend, and you're sending it out, and you're posting it on a, a, a website, and you're making the website look nice, and you're putting lots of documentation there, and it's, it's, it's a very special moment. But then later, it just becomes... It, it's work now. You're maintaining your application. You're maintaining your code. You're fixing a bug that you, you that you hate is even there in the first place, and now you're fixing it, and you're spending your Saturday doing that, and you didn't want to do that on this Saturday. You just want to get the thing out there. So you want your process of getting your code into users' hands very easy. You want it to be fast and repeatable and, and something that you can script and just don't have to think about ever again. So that's an important aspect of delivery. But the other part of delivery is on the other side, is the user's side of delivery. When they get the code, what do they do with it? How do they get that onto their computer in such a way that it can run? And that can be surprisingly difficult. How many dependencies do they need to install? Do they need the... Do they need special versions of packages? Do they need developer versions? Do they need... Um, other, you know, different versions. Do they need special libraries that that are specific to this uh, language's package manager, or can they use their normal package manager? Or are they not on Linux at all, and they're they're on some other platform? How are they going to get it on there? And and you'd be surprised at the, the the nuances that you start encountering, even with something venerable like Python. And I kind of I kind of hinted towards this in the previous episode when I was saying there at the very end, I said Python gets a lot of hype and sometimes you have to tune that out a little bit and look at it realistically. And and this is part of that. This is part of the hype. Part of the hype of Python is the the very true and accurate statement that Python works on all platforms. Well, sorry, I mean all major platforms. I mean, it's not true and accurate to say that it literally works on all platforms. I, I, there's probably a platform out there that it does not work on. But all the major platforms, it's, it's very, you know, the expectation is that if you write something in Python, you'll be able to run that on uh, Linux, 
Windows, Mac, BSD. All of those things, it'll it'll work. But the more complex that you get with your Python code, the harder it is to guarantee that that is necessarily the truth. And in fact, I shouldn't even say that. I should just say sometimes that's not true because Mac famously ships very old versions of Python with their with their operating system. And so you can't guarantee that your user is going to have a compatible version. This was especially true back in the uh, late 2.7, early 3.x days, maybe not even that early, I mean early and then beyond, um, you, you would write something and maybe there'd just be one little syntactic difference between Python 3 and 2.7, and you, you'd find that it would completely break on macOS because it doesn't take that much to break Python. And, and the difference between a 2.75 or, or 0.5 or, or whatever they were shipping at the time would, would break anything written for Python 3. It just wouldn't work. So even with, you know, compatibility layers and, or uh, libraries and stuff like that. So there are, there are, and then Windows doesn't even ship Python. Maybe it does now, but for a long time it, it, it has not. I don't, I, I haven't heard that it does, but, but anyway, it, it's, it, it can be very difficult to guarantee that code you send out to a different computer is going to work the way that it the, the, the way that you expect it to so delivery it's important it is something that you want users not to really have to think about just simply because usually when users in the ideal form they, they the ideal scenario they download an application from the internet they click the installer it installs and everything works or as they say everything just works that's the expectation because that's what people do and you might we might look at the delivery methods of of something and think well that's just not efficient that's a very large package for a very small application how silly it is to ship it that way but again to the user that doesn't really matter to most users it's not going to matter that much whether the package that they've downloaded is 100 megabytes or 20 megabytes they don't care they just want the thing to work. And so if you deliver to your users a Python script with a two-page document on all the different steps they have to take to install Python and then to install, well, in order to py install Python, they have to install this thing called the package manager, which uh, on depending on what their OS, it's going to be either called Chocolatey or um, Mac ports or Homebrew. Or if they're on Linux, then there's this thing, but they're not on Linux. So back to Windows and Mac, and then how they install Python, and then they have to set their path, or maybe they don't. It really kind of depends on the platform. Um, and then they have to install FFmpeg, and then maybe a library from VLC, and then, you know, all these different steps that you have to, that they'll have to go through. Nobody wants to do that. So delivery, delivery, it's very, very important. And Python tries to make it pretty easy. I'm going to demonstrate that right now. But first, we need something to deliver. And so I guess what we'll do is we'll create a quick little Python library just for fun. Uh, and this is partly just because I didn't do any Python in the episode called Python. And, you know, that's that's arguably a little bit strange not to do any Python in an episode about Python. Well, arguably that's not strange at all. I mean, you're allowed to talk about Python without demonstrating Python code. But the, the flow of this um, of this show, I feel, sort of demands a little bit of Python code just as proof of concept. So here we are. This is the proof of concept. So we're going to make a little Python library. And, and this is an important principle, I think, because there's a pretty big movement I think throughout programming, and I don't know if it's a recent movement, I'm just saying there's a method of, there, there's a way to look at programming that, that essentially says everything ought to be a library. And the reason everything ought to be a library is because you want to be able to reuse everything that you make for different purposes. Uh, I mean, and I don't know that like literally everything is supposed to be a library. I'm just saying a lot of people really, really prefer to ensure that everything that 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 a lot of code that they write is a library, because then when you are writing something else that you thought you'll you, you, has no connection with the thing that you wrote yesterday, you suddenly realize, wait a minute, I actually do need to parse this data in that same way. Hey, wait, I got a library for that. I've written it. 
I'll just use that library in this project. And so you're starting to, you're, you're kind of compounding on what you're building. So we're going to create a library called my hello lib. And I am making a directory called my hello lib. And I'm going to go into my hello lib. And uh, I'll create an empty file, strangely enough. And this empty file is going to be called underscore underscore init underscore underscore dot py. And it's just going to be an empty file. There's no content in that file whatsoever, which seems strange. But this is a one of the quirks of Python. Uh, there's a... You're, you're, you're supposed to put an empty file called underscore underscore init underscore underscore dot py in, in a, a library folder to denote to Python that this is a loadable module. This is a Python module. And the and, and, and an empty file called uh, or a, a file called underscore underscore init underscore underscore dot py is sort of permission to for Python to treat that folder as a module folder. I think that's weird. Maybe it makes sense to some people. I just I find that a little bit strange myself. I mean that that's necessary. Um, and and who knows? Maybe it's not technically necessary. Maybe it's just something that people say that you should do as uh, in, for for good you know best practice okay so now i'm going to create an actual file uh which i'll call my hello lib.py this is the the python code that we're writing this is the python library so i'm going to make a function with the prefix def or with a keyword def as in define so def and then space let's do greeter parentheses s close parentheses colon next line Print uh, parentheses s dot upper parentheses 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 close parentheses and that's it. I was about to say semicolon. Um, okay, so what have we done here? We've then define a function called greeter and greeter accepts one argument or one parameter which is s as in Sierra or string. What does greeter do? Well, it prints it 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 prints to the terminal. It prints um, whatever s is, but then it passes, it applies to this string, it applies this little method or this function called upper, which is a built-in thing that Python can do, and that makes the string that you apply this method to, uh, it makes it uppercase. It makes all the letters in that string uppercase. So we can expect that if we were to invoke this library, it would transform whatever we pass to it, it'll make that that string s, and then it'll print s after passing it through this uppercase conversion thing. And that's it. That's our library. I'm going to save that, and then I'm going to kill that window, that buffer. And now I'm going to, let's do a test. So in my hello lib, no, let's do it one directory outside of my hello lib, just for, just to keep things tidy. I'm going to make an, another file called test.py, and we'll start that as usual with an import statement, and the import, that the, the thing that we're importing is going to be my hello lib, but now that's in a directory in the current folder. So I'm going to do my hello lib dot my hello lib. That's a little bit confusing, but what that's saying is that the because of that underscore underscore init underscore underscore dot pi, the folder my hello lib is the module, and then inside of that folder there's this file called my hello lib dot pi. So in my hello lib and then dot my hello lib, I'm importing, and I'm just gonna because that's pretty long, I'm just gonna import it as hello. So import my hello lib dot my hello lib as hello. I probably could have chosen better names for this so I don't have so much repetition, but um, I didn't think that far ahead. In 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 real life, you, you do sometimes see things like that. You'll see import, uh, import um, I don't know, string utils. I'm just making this up. String utils. But string utils is a collection of utilities. So you might say, you, you might see something like import string utils dot string convert, and that's the actual, mo that's the, that's the, component of that module that you're importing string convert but it lives inside string utils or whatever okay so we've imported my hello lib dot my hello lib but we've imported it as hello so we can now call it hello in our in our code so i'm going to type hello dot greeter the greeter of course is that function that we just created that that's the def 
greeter s print s dot upper. That's what that is. So we're just invoking that function out of the hello file. And, and remember, hello is a, an alias in this case for myhellolib.py. So we're going to do hello.greeter, and we know that greeter wants one parameter. It wants an argument from us because it needs to assign s to something. So we have to give it a string. And so I guess I'll just give it clat2. And in fact, I'm going to give it clat2 with a capital a one of the one of the a's is going to be capital and I'll, i'm doing the, actually the l will be capital there that that's easy to recognize and i'm doing that i'm just mixing case just to make sure that when we pass this through the the library we've just created everything everything still happens the way that i expect i don't want to be surprised and find out that the capital l has been changed to a lowercase l but all the lowercase ones have been capitalized or something weird like that all right so I'm going to open up a shell here, and where am I? I'm in, yep, okay. So now I'm going to do python3 dot slash test dot pi, and it returns the string capital K-L-A-A-T-U, all capitals. K-L-A-A-T-U, they're all capital letters. There's no. There's been no sort of reversal of cases or anything like that. It's just everything is capitalized, and that's exactly what we would have expected. So as you can see from this, we've written a very simple script called test.py. All it does is echo a string that I provided in the script. But the way that it does that is by importing a library that we created called myhellolib, which specializes in taking strings, whatever they may be, and converting them to uppercase. So I could do this interactively too. I could do Python 3, and now I've got, I've got, I'm in a Python idle session. And I could do import my hello lib dot my hello lib as h to make to make it even easier. Now h dot greeter parentheses quote gort close parentheses close parentheses. I mean close quote close parentheses, and then I get gort back. So this is this is pretty flexible because it, it's code that you've written that you're then able to invoke later on. So I'm going to go to my hello lib, the directory now. I'm CDing into it, and there's this my hello lib.py here. There's the underscore underscore init underscore underscore dot py file. I'm going to launch a new Python session here, Python 3 session, and now I'm just going to import my hello lib, and I'm not doing import my hello lib dot my hello lib because I'm in the directory now. So I just need to point it to the Python file that I want to import, which I've just done. Import my hello lib. And now I can type my hello lib dot greeter, parentheses, quote, foo, close, quote, close parentheses, return, and I get foo back. So that's the relationship of all those different, all those different files. None of that has anything to do with delivering code. I just wanted to do a little bit of Python, and that is a little bit advanced. Um, you know, like I said in the previous episode, ideally, I think what we would really kind of do is, well, no, ideal, not ideally. What we do in real life is we teach people how to do a print statement, right? We say, this is Python. Here's how you can make it print some text to your terminal. And that's a really cool lesson, and people will get really excited about it because they've just made their computer do something, and they understand what they've done. But then we keep, we, we start building on top of that, and I feel like that's, that's taking one path, and I, I keep thinking it might be better, yes, to introduce people to the print statement or you know whatever fancy thing you're introducing them to, the one plus one statement or whatever, and then and then demonstrate, okay, well here's here's how you're supposed to do it as a programmer, and it it is complex, and it's 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 talking about things that they don't necessarily always need to think about, and yet maybe learning it early, maybe that's better because then they then they know to modularize their code. You know, when they have discrete functions that they want to to perform in their code, make that a function and take it a step further and make it a library that you can import and so on. I don't know. It's it's a thought. It's not necessarily a, a diatribe. It's just it's a thought. All right. So anyway, we've now created a library and that is good. We needed that because we want to deliver something. We want to we want to package something up. So I'm gonna go to uh where am i going here yeah i'm just in the folder of my hello lib and i guess that's where i'll keep it for now yeah okay that's fine okay so what we need to do is create 
a file called myhellolib.toml. So I'm doing this in my demo folder. So in my demo folder, I'm seeing myhellolib directory, which contains my module, and test.py. So now I'm going to create a new file here, and it is going to be called myhellolib.toml. And in this file, I'm going to create, uh, essentially it's an INI file, that's what it'll look like, uh, square bracket build-system close square bracket requires equals square bracket quote setup tools close quote comma quote wheel close quote close square bracket so what we've just said there is that we're we're creating we're instantiating a build system build dash system it's a keyword i didn't just make it up that's something that setup tools is, is expecting to see or rather build expects to see and it's it's saying that the build dash system what we what we're requiring for this thing to build is setup tools and wheel build dash backend equals quote setup tools dot build underscore meta close quote i'm going to save that file now again i didn't make that stuff up that stuff that setup tools expects you to have in your in your project directory in order for it to know how to treat your project. It is mostly proscribed to you. I'm also going to create a file called setup.py, and this has certain keywords in it that are expected by setup tools. You can find out more keywords that you can use. This is the bare minimum. Uh, setup tools is pretty well documented, so you'll, you'll find information on that on their website. So um, this is a Python file. So from setup tools, import setup. We're importing a thing called setup, and then we are actually using setup. We're doing setup parentheses, then next line and indented, name equals quote my hello lib, close quote comma, next line version equals quote 0.0.1, .0 close quote, comma, next line packages equals square bracket quote my hello lib, quote, close square bracket, comma, install underscore requires equals square bracket quote requests close quote comma quote import lib semicolon python underscore version equals equals quote three dot eight close quote close quote comma square bracket comma close parentheses it's kind of abhorrent it's kind of ugly you can also do this as an uh i think a sort of an ini structured file or a, it's i think it's dot cfg is what it what it is allowed to be called but I think the setup is, is pretty much an INI file. I haven't done it that way, so I'm not super 100% clear on it. But um, it is a little bit ugly, and it is one of those things where it, it's you really you go to setup tools, you look up the you know the the the, the syntax, you paste it into the fold into the file, and you change it. Maybe if you want a little bit more. Uh, you know, you, you have a need for more uh, metadata about your package, essentially. You can look up what Setup Tools understands and add those. Um, but yeah, it's, it, this, is, um, this is a configuration file. It's a lot like configure.am or whatever it is in AutoTools or CMake text or C, CMake lists.txt, all that stuff. There, it's just, it's, it's a template that you follow. So if it sounds fairly random that's because it, it it really kind of is it is something that is just proscribed to you from the project so why is name equals quote hello lib close quote and yet packages is square brackets quote my hello lib close quote close square brackets well obviously because there's an opportunity for more content in the square brackets than what we're using here but you know you don't don't think about all that stuff. Don't don't panic about that stuff. That's the kind of stuff that you will learn to change as needed. Um, initially, all you need is to follow the template that they tell you to follow. Okay, so I'm saving that file, I think. Yes, I am. Okay, that has been saved. So now I've got my hello lib, the directory, which contains the init file and the myhellolib.py, the actual library that we've written. I've got myhellolib.toml, that's the sort of the project identifier for the build system, and then the setup.py, which is the metadata about the project. Believe it or not, that's all you need. That's it, really. So I'm going to create a shell here, or open up a shell here. Um, oh, figures it would open up in the buffer that I 
didn't want it to open up in. That's okay. Uh, so now I will... Oh, actually, you know what? We need to install the build, the build command. Uh, and probably, possibly, possibly, honestly, the setup tools command. Because um, in Slackware, setup tools, the setup tools that, that ships with Slackware in 14.2 was for Python 2.7. And we're not using Python 2.7 here. We're using Python 3 because no one uses 2.7. It's end of life, as I said in the previous episode. So let's pause for a moment and make sure that we've got all of the components that we actually need uh, installed. Okay, so to install setup tools, it is simply Python 3-m, as in module, PIP, the PIP module. Python 3-m PIP install setup tools. And then you could do dash dash user, um, but since I would rather have this apply to my whole system anyway, I'm gonna do I'm gonna do this with a sudo in front of the whole command. So I've got sudo python 3-m pip install setup tools. Hit return, let it pull down all of the libraries and modules and things that it needs to pull down. And once that's done, I'll do a sudo python 3-m pip install build b u i l d build is the i guess the de facto build system i mean there are others uh which i i think actually one of them we're going to talk about eventually in in this series but build build is kind of the the one that as far as i can tell is just kind of the easy one to use that's just what people use um so we've got setup tools and build both installed for python 3 which is the environment that i'm using right now so um now that that's installed and now that the uh the the setup tools files exist my hello lib toml and setup.py all that's left to do is to actually build the package so i'm going to do python 3 dash m as in module build it says it's creating a virtual on a virtual environment to isolate uh, this project it's invoking a bunch of things from setup tools it's creating um, special files like egg files and other things and now it finishes with two files left in a new directory that it created for me called dist and those two files are my hello lib dash zero dot zero dot one dash pi three dash none dash any dot wheel dot whl and my hello lib dash zero dot zero dot one dot tar dot gz both of those those are valid python modules or packages rather and you could install either of those into your python uh, environment and then you would have access to my hello lib just as you have access to you know anything else that you have installed in your python sort of environment whether it's beautiful soup or or numpy or, or whatever and you can look at them i mean uh with tar tar dash dash list dash dash file dist my hello lib blah tar dot gz tells me that uh the underscore underscore init file is there the my hello lib dot pi file is there and then there's a bunch of new stuff that i didn't create my hello lib dot egg dash info and in that file there's package info sources dot txt dependency underscore links dot txt requires dot txt and top underscore level dot txt there's a setup dot cfg that's the one and setup dot py setup dot py of course was created by me so everything's in there it picked up the metadata that i needed it to pick up on like the version number and things like that and that's good now if i do an unzip dash l lowercase l dist my hello dot lib blah dot whl that's the wheel file so wheel files are sort of specific uh specific to python packages they're they're special packages that python creates and in this case there's not really anything exciting about it because there's there's no binary data or anything like that um some wheels contain binary data and this one doesn't that's why it's called py3-none-any because there's not really any restriction it's python is or, or build or setup tools whatever is smart enough to know that this could work on any system because it's just a pure python text file easy to easy to distribute easy to run on any platform 
that's set up enough to install a wheel in the first place. You will find wheels that are restricted to, you know, just, just ARM or just x86 underscore 64 or whatever, because it knows that the data that it had to package up is architecture dependent. This is not, so there's not a whole lot of interesting stuff here, but you do see that my hello lib is there, the init init uh, underscore underscore init is there. There's also a um, my hello lib dash zero zero one dot dist dash info directory, which contains metadata, wheel top level dot txt, and record. So that is all in the wheel file. It doesn't really matter which is which, tar dot gz wheel. You could install either and end up with basically the same thing. The wheel, like like I say, is a little bit more Python-specific, I guess. Um, well, it is Python-specific. Tar.gz is a tar.gz. Um, but, I mean, they're both open open archives. It's not... There's no, there's nothing funny going on here. They're, you know, they would work on whatever system. So that's it. That's packaging Python. So those steps, again is you create some Python. It doesn't have to be a library. I just did it as a library because I thought that might be a neat demonstration if you've never created a Python library before. Uh, it could be, you know, people package up all kinds of things. It could be an application, like a full GUI application. It could be a an application that launches a little local server and then runs in your browser the way that Jupyter Notebooks does. Uh, it could be a game that runs on Pygame and then launches... Uh, you know, there's you can package if you wrote it in Python, you can package it. Um, so you write your application, you create a .toml file with the specifics about the build system that is going to be invoked to build the project. Since we're talking about setup tools, that's going to be in this case setup tools. Setup tools. Put that in your .toml file in the correct syntax. That's done. Then you create a setup.py file with some metadata about your project, and then you run build. Sounds easy, right? And and it is. It, it is legitimately easy. Like, that is really easy. If you look at CMake and AutoTools, comparatively, this is a very easy process in many ways. You don't have to wor- really think about paths and things like that, generally speaking. But, you know, just to avoid any any sort of glossing over things and sort of errors of omission here it's not always that easy like there are times where if your application is is particularly complex and by complex i just mean maybe you're drawing from libraries or modules that aren't just a pip install away uh in that case you might have to bundle it yourself or you might have to refer users to go get it manually and 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 have that as part of your setup or, or part of your install process. Or there might be, um, you know, if you're doing stuff and you really, you're using frameworks that are platform specific, now you have to think about how you're going to come up with packages for each different platform when each one depends on a different uh, build of a framework or whatever. So it, it can get complex. It's not always going to be a simple matter of four li- uh, three lines in a TOML file and eight lines in a setup.py. Sometimes there's going to be more to it than that. But getting started with this with this system, the setup tools, it definitely instills a lot of sort of um, best practices in you early because you, you understand the way that things are built, you understand the way things are packaged up, and you don't rely on weird hacks that you might have seen online. That's certainly one of the earliest sort of methods of distributing Python that I ever saw. I just saw in someone else's Python code, and it was admittedly clever, but but looking back at that now, it compared to setup tools, it just went to so much trouble to establish what really just shouldn't have ever needed to be established. You know, it was doing all these system checks and trying to figure out where the paths are. Just like, let setup tools do that for you. Like you wouldn't have to go to all that trouble. And really, that is the same critique I guess I have, or not critique the the same benefit I I see with Auto Tools and CMake and probably other systems that I'm not thinking of is that they're standardized. And yes, you can reinvent the wheel um, by by checking the user system and trying to figure out what that is, what that looks like. But that's not necessarily the most the, the best use of your time. It's not the most elegant way of, of implementing 
the thing because it's already been done and it's being maintained by a bunch of other people who see lots of different systems and they see all the bug reports when something breaks. Just let use their code. Let them do that work. Let the system work the way that it's supposed to work. This is open source. Utilize the support systems that you have. Use setup tools. Don't try to hard code this yourself. It's not worth it in the end. That's it. That's setup tools. Let's have some coffee. time for listener feedback and actually and for announcements i have an announcement so the the announcement is that the speaks feed is sort of being repurposed i was going to say it was going away but that is not accurate it is being repurposed so for those of you who don't know there's a there there there's a codec out there and it's called speaks and it was very good in its time. It was a very low bandwidth codec that would just crush the spoken spoken word. It would it would take your voice and it would just make it as small as it thought it could possibly go. Something like 8,000 uh, bytes per, uh, per second, I think it is, and or eight kilobytes per second, and uh, it was just really, really, it was nice. It was really low bandwidth. And you can still kind of come across it, I think, in some places. But it has largely been supplanted by, well, for a while, Kelt. And then, most recently, by Opus. Opus, I cannot speak highly of, uh, highly enough of Opus. It is, it is such a nice codec. It sounds fantastic at, at absurdly small sizes. It's really, really good. If you are not subscribed to the Opus feed and you can be, you really should. You should just go over and, and subscribe to that because it's 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 such it's there's just nothing to it. You get an hour of audio for like eight megabytes. It, it's great. So check out the Opus feed is the the short version of this. But the Speaks feed, uh, it was you know it was pretty small. It, it was probably another half you know, half of Opus, it was like, no, actually it wasn't. It was not half. It was more like three quarters of Opus. So the savings weren't that great. And the quality was really, really not near, you know, it was orders of magnitude worse than Opus. So for a savings of maybe two megabytes per episode, you're getting this thing that you could sort of, you know, the music was bit crushed and the voice was really, really pretty bad. And why would you do that? Well, Speaks historically has been a feed that I have offered, and so I didn't want to take it away. Um, but for the past couple of weeks, I've been posting static to the Speaks feed. Like, nothing but white noise. Just static. And no one has complained. Now, that tells me that either nobody is listening to the Speaks feed, or that those that are, are really, really fond of white noise. Now, all of the white noise um, is the same, so if you listen to one episode, you'll you can just keep listening to that episode for white noise. Uh, so I don't need to continue posting white noise to the Speaks feed. And instead, I'm going to start posting, or I have started posting, a, a version of this show without music. The reason I'm doing this is because I've gotten feedback in the past. I think I've even read one of the emails on, on, on the show at one point. I've gotten emails in the past saying that the music in the show sometimes is very jarring. And... The, the specific use case for that is that some people apparently use podcasts, maybe just my podcast, I don't know, but um, they use podcasts um, to sort of fall asleep to. And I don't know if that's intentional. Um, maybe they mean to listen to the show, but they're doing so at late, at, at late at night, and so they happen to fall asleep. Or maybe, you know, some people just like to hear noise when they're falling asleep, which seems almost counterintuitive to some people, but other people it makes sense. You know, people watch television to fall asleep sometimes, so it does make sense. Um, when I first heard about it, I thought it was – I did actually think it was a joke. I thought it was – just someone being funny, but I heard it not once. I heard it a couple of times, and so I started to finally pay attention when someone uh, seemingly randomly emailed Hacker Public Radio with the same kind of complaint, saying that they often fall asleep to podcasts and that the music is very jarring and 
that's a problem. So I'm interested in delivering content for people the way that they want the content. That That's kind of part of the deal. So I have decided that the Speaks feed is now going to be a feed containing only the speech part of the episode. The only drawback there is that halfway through the episode, there's going to be, you know, 30 seconds of, of, of complete silence, which seems a little bit weird. But what I'm doing to make this, to make the workflow easy on myself, is I'm just turning off the music track in Audacity before I export. So I export once with both tracks, and then I export again with just one track. And while it does seem like it would be easy to just move everything over and get rid of that silence, that's one step more than I want to take to, you know, to make this truly, truly easy. So I am... There is going to be some silence in the middle of the episode. I apologize. If you're listening to it on a mobile, you can probably just hit the forward button. If not, just take that time maybe to, to think about what I've just said or to think about what you might do with a programming language or a you know technique that I've, I've been talking about, whatever. Or, or take it to go get coffee. That's what you're supposed to do. Okay, so anyway, I mean, it, it might be late at night. You might be falling asleep. You can still manage to get some coffee. Trust me, I've done it. Um, so Speaks feed is now the speech feed. Everything's going to stay the same. The Speaks feed location is going to be the same. I'm not cha- that's it's part of the the reason I've decided to adopt that, you know, repurpose it. I just don't want I don't want the feed to go away. I just want it to be used better than it has been, which again, historically it's been useful and then it stopped being so useful because Opus was just clearly the better codec, and then finally it became truly useless because I was just posting static to it to see if anyone would notice, and no one noticed. That is an update on the Speaks feed. Now let's talk about some listener feedback. I got some listener feedback from Tim, and Tim has a tip about less. He says, hey, Klaatu, on episode 431, you discussed the package config scripts and went to reference a line number, but noted that you were in less, so didn't have line numbers. In case you need it in the future, you can toggle line numbers in less with dash n. That is a, a the minus sign and then a capital N as in November. Just in case you find it handy, you can toggle a lot of options to less by typing them directly in a running session of less. I regularly use dash R to toggle ANSI color processing and dash S to toggle wrapping of long lines. Hope you find this helpful. That doesn't sound, this sounds too good to be true. Sorry, Tim. This just doesn't seem right to me. Let's, let's test it out. We'll do man less and then we'll pipe that to less. So here we are in less. And so according to Tim, I should be able to hit dash capital N to toggle on line numbers. And it does. It works just as Tim promised it would. Wow. So he was telling the truth. See, now I knew that you could do things in less like GG to go up or um, what is it? Slash to search. So if I do slash and then, I don't know, caret, C-A-R-E-T, it takes me down to line 30. I know that now. Uh, to where it says carrot, and then in again for the next one, and it takes me down to line 704, in again, 1222, and that's the only, those are the three instances of carrot. Uh, I just didn't know that, and I, I believe that those are all, you can look at those just by hitting H for help. You get all of those um, shortcuts. And I guess I always imagined, actually, I'm not even seeing these. I'm not even seeing the dash the dash commands. Oh, here we go. So options. Most options can be changed either on the command line or from within less by using the dash or dash dash command. That says it right there in the less help. I never noticed that. I think I always imagined when scrolling through H for help that the dash options was just this documentation being complete. Like here are the things that you can pass to less when you're launching less. I, I just, I can't imagine, I don't think I can really imagine not wanting line numbers on. I might just have to alias less to less dash in at least, because I I can't think of when I don't want line numbers. I just always like line numbers. I mean, it's not like I'm, I never pipe less to something else. You know, it's not like I use less as an intermediate step and I might not want line numbers because it'll munge the data that gets passed to something else. That's just not, I've never done that before. So 
it seems like there would be no no drawback to having line numbers on. But there there are a lot of things here, um, a lot of controls with the, the dash number, and that's that's really really cool. I'm gonna have to um, I'm gonna have to check some of those out. I really am because I, I've got to admit that is kind of well, it, it makes all the difference. I mean, it really is. It, it's it's quite that's a big deal. And and that the help for less is a lot longer than the help for most. I'll say that. And I feel like options are good. I really like options. Might be time to go back to less sometimes because that is really nice. And I'm going to end this with an email from Tobias. And Tobias says, thanks a lot for your show. Um, I really share your thoughts about open source. Okay. I am currently angry about my self-hosted NextCloud Pi cloud. Worked fine for two years on a Pi 3 until the day there was a little problem with it and connecting uh, the Android app for notes. Then I recognized the updates I did over time were just layers on top of NextCloud Pi, apparently, and that NextCloud was actually really old and outdated. I tried to update the results. Um, uh, any attempt to uh, update resulted in a broken state of the system. No one could help getting it running again. Okay, so he asks, do you have experience with NextCloud Pi or other self-hosted cloud projects? He's looking for a stable environment or project that, uh, for that purpose of syncing and backing up data, calendaring, and contacts from a mobile phone, sharing files from time to time with friends, and so on. And, and he says, uh, maybe I should give C-File a try. So first of all, C-File I've not tried, and I keep meaning to try it, and I just keep not trying it. For no good reason, it's just I, I just don't. Um, Nextcloud, however, I have been running for I don't know how long, uh, at least eight, no, longer than that, at least eight years, and probably at least two years before that, so at least ten years, and I've had really great experiences with it, and I've run it, I think I've, I, I don't know that I've, I've very rarely run it on a dedicated platform. So a lot of the NextCloud instances that I have run have been on uh, shared shared servers, just with with dirt cheap hosting plans, and it has amazingly worked really really well. The trick with that has been that you have to go into your dirt cheap hosting provider's uh, web admin thing, you know their cPanel or, or whatever they're using. You go in there and you create a MySQL database that is purposed for nothing but you you set your username you set your password and you get the ip address the the location uh, not the ip address the uh the the fully qualified domain name of that mysql server you plug those values into your next cloud configuration username password and the fully qualified domain name of the mysql server and you just install nextcloud into a folder into a directory and that's it that's all you do and and it has been running surprisingly surprisingly well i won't say that it's that that's the best way to run it i'm just saying for 10 years that's how i've run it and it's uh served the 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 purpose that i've needed it to serve now running nextcloud that way you know i i've done mostly my own uh major version upgrades i i sometimes even do my minor version upgrades that way but um, but I definitely do my major version upgrades that way. You, I think I do nowadays. I can do my minor ones through the UI, the little bell icon or whatever it is. But I I, I feel like I still do my major ones manually. I don't remember exactly why. It's it's an easy process either way. You can just you you move your data directory out of your out of your install. You unzip or you untar your your new upgrade version into into a new, you know, into a location of the same name, and then you put your data directory back into it, and it just it keeps working. It just keeps on going. It's really, really, really amazing. Um, like I say, it's it's not that that is not what I would do if it was a production machine. Like that's not what I would advise. That said, it is functionally a production machine for me, because that's where I keep all a bunch of my stuff is on my next cloud. Um, and very recently, I've started using Joplin app, which is a, a desktop and a mobile app for note taking. For you, you, you know, you you can create like markdown notes and stuff. And one of the back ends for Joplin, 
it's an open source application. Uh, one of the backends for Joplin can be your next cloud install. And so what I did was I went into my next cloud install on my cheap little hosting service and created a user specific to Joplin and sank, and, and did a sync between my uh, Joplin and, and that user. So all that user is is just my Joplin data, and it syncs back and forth, and I have um, other people syncing their Joplin apps to that as well. And so it's, um, you know, because we're sharing, in other words, we're sharing the same Joplin instance. We're, that's the, the advantage here for me uh, for, of Joplin is that I needed to share a notebook with other people. So we're syncing notes back and forth, and when I update something, they see the update because they're syncing to the same server. So it's, it's worked really, really well, and and it's all just on a, um, just like a, I don't know, like a GoDaddy type thing, or a, you know, crazy, crazyhosts.com, or what, you know, whatever. You you pick your your favorite cheap reseller of, of shared server services, and and you can probably install next next cloud onto it they won't support it like they won't help you if anything breaks but with local configuration you can do a lot like i say normally most of those servers i mean if you do like the literal cheapest service where it's like you know oh we'll let you have a a a, a web page and that and that's the extent that's that's not going to be the thing but if you have SSH access or, or even just, I mean, I used to do it even with just FTP access. If you have that kind of access, then you can create the database and then point NextCloud to that database. You can place NextCloud on your server, and you may have to do something with like a .php file, um, or a, yeah, .php something or another file, where you... Um, increase the memory that PHP is allowed to use or something like that. But it's all local files that you're totally enable you're totally able to to create without problem because it doesn't you know, there's no system level thing happening here. So I don't know. For for me, just yeah, purchasing a, a really low rent kind of server has been fine for Nextcloud. Now that said, if you don't want to do that, because that's an ongoing subscription type of thing, uh, you could also, I, I think, I, I feel pretty sure you could run it off of a Pi yourself, which, by the way, is a lot easier than you might think. You know, I, I'm, I'm talking about installing Nextcloud, and maybe that sounds intimidating, but it's actually really, really easy. Um, I mean, here's, I'm going to just jump onto Fedora here. You do a sudo DNF uh, search next cloud and it returns lots of results the top one though is next cloud private file sync and share server so sudo dnf install next cloud it pulls next cloud down from the repository or well it, it looks at the repository and finds out what next cloud requires in order for it to be able to install which there are, there are going to be a couple of things here it's not a short list. So, for instance, there's Nextcloud itself. There's Nextcloud-httpd. So that's the web server thing that will make Nextcloud available over the web. Nextcloud-mysql. That's the thing that'll make sure that there's a MySQL database in the background. There's a bunch of libraries for codec support and stuff like that, like libtiff, libwebp, libzip, libxslt, libgs, libxrender. Lots of libraries. Uh, there's Samba clients, there's Samba stuff, there's uh, some X libraries, there's GDK stuff. So, you know, it's it's not a small thing, but I mean, we're talking about 541 megabytes after installation, and all of this is essentially done for you, right? I mean, I, I, you answer yes to that question, and it installs 133 packages for you, and mostly configures them. I mean, it, it holds a couple of things back, and that can be a little bit confusing, but we'll, we'll go through that. So, okay, so it's installed the 100 and more packages. It's all done. Now, uh, on Fedora, it doesn't automatically start all of the services that you need um, to have running after you install them. So, And that's a good thing. I like that. Um, so we need to start the web server. So I'll do sudo systemctl start httpd. Hit return. And that starts the Apache web server. We're going to have to restart it later, but but I'm just going through the steps, the, the normal steps of, of what you would take. Now, if I go to the 
to the location, the web server, at this point, I get an error telling me that I'm not allowed in for whatever reason. It doesn't say why, of course. Well, the, the reason is that the firewall is blocking traffic coming into the server. The firewall doesn't know you have a web server running, so we have to poke a hole in the firewall. So we'll do sudo firewall-cmd-zone equals public. Well, I could, maybe I don't know what zone I'm in, so I'll do dash, uh, what is it, get dash active dash zone. And that tells me I'm in the public zone right now. All right, so I'll do firewall-cmd, oh, sudo firewall-cmd-zone equals public dash dash add dash service equals http dash dash permanent permanent has to be at the end do that and i'll just hit control p to go up one and then i'll add https as well so i'm adding both http and https as a service to my firewall firewall cmd knows what the service you know, those are predefined services, HTTP, HTTPS. Someone somewhere has programmed a configuration file so that when you add HTTP and HTTPS to your firewall-cmd, what that really tells your server is, or your firewall is to open port 80 and port 443 because those are the ports that those protocols use. Okay, so that's done. Now I should be able to go to my the the IP address of this server and indeed I can I get a, a nice Fedora welcome page telling me that I am now running an Apache web server on this uh, server it's a test page if you're a member of the general public the fact that you're seeing this means that you're that the person running this hasn't configured their site and so on so Fedora powered by Apache 2.4 good to go there well now where's Nextcloud well, it turns out that Nextcloud installs itself in a subdirectory called Nextcloud on your server. So I'll go to that server again, 192.168.121.243, happens to be the address, slash Nextcloud, hit return, and oh, I'm getting an error here about a 403 permission, uh, I don't have permission to view this, this location, okay? That's weird. I'll search, I'll do an ls-l of where I think Nextcloud is probably installed just from experience. And if you didn't have this experience, you'd have to look at DNF info on Nextcloud to see where it dumps everything. I just happen to know that it dumps it into slash user slash share slash Nextcloud. So I'm doing an ls-l on that just to look at the permissions because 403 is obviously some kind of permission problem. It's not a 404, it's a 403. It's, it's permission. Um, so it looks to me like index.html and index.php, which would be the, the things that I would think next, you know, when you, when you go to a web, when you go to a location on a web server, the default thing that gets loaded is index.html or index.php. And those are readable and writable by the owner and then readable by the group and by everyone else. So that should work. I wonder what the problem is here. Well, the next thing I would think to to check is slash etsy slash httpd because a lot of times there's you know th this could be indicative of a configuration error now the configuration for apache is stored in httpd slash conf dot d and sure enough if i look in there there is a nextcloud.conf and here in the comments of nextcloud.conf in the apache folder it says as the initial setup wizard is active upon installation, access is initially allowed only from localhost. After configuring the installation correctly and creating the admin account to allow access from any host, do this. And it gives me a line to link, to symlink, the nextcloud-access.conf.avail to z-nextcloud-access.conf. So it's telling me to, to create a symlink on my system if I want to configure this from a from a, another computer and that's what i'll do now after i do that i can go to this server again 192.168.121.243 slash next cloud ah that looks better that's a blue screen the the next cloud blue now it is giving me another error it's saying that it it can't find a file called can underscore install which it says should be in my configuration folder well once again that's easy enough to to, to solve so I'll do a sudo touch slash user slash share slash nextcloud slash config slash can underscore install, all capitals, can 
underscore install, all capitals. Now I'll refresh that page one more time, and now I get the blue screen. The, the good blue screen, it's Nextcloud Blue. Create an admin account, it says. Okay, cool, I can create a Cloud 2, and what do I do for my passwords? Oh yeah, um, bogus123. And actually, instead of Cloud 2, I'll just call it bogus. So bogus123, it is a weak password, I realize that. And then there's this section that says storage and database. So I'll click on that. It says the data folder is gonna be var lib nextcloud data. And then it's giving me the option to configure a database, either SQLite, which is uh, selected for me, or MySQL. So if I do SQLite, it looks like it's gonna figure everything else, uh, everything for me. And it says I should only use this for minimal and development instances. It would prefer me to use MySQL. All right, so I'll do that, MySQL or MariaDB. Well, now that's asking me for a database user, a database password, and a database name, and a location. Well, the location is exactly what it thinks the location is. It's localhost, because I'm, I'm running both the database and Nextcloud on this same, on this computer, on this same computer. But what is missing here is the MySQL database user, database password, and database name. Problem is that this hasn't installed a database for us. I think it installed the connectors, nextcloud-mysql, but it didn't actually install the database. Because I guess, strictly speaking, it's not necessary. You can run it on SQLite. So I'm going to do a quick install here, sudo dnf install mariadb space mariadb-server. And if you don't know, mariadb is uh, mysql reborn. So that's installed, and of course we have to start it because it's a service, so let's sudo systemctl start mariadb, and now that's running. Now we should be able to go into MySQL and configure some things. So let's do MySQL. Uh, it's, it's strange that mariadb is what we installed, MySQL is what we invoke, but it's, again, MySQL got sort of reborn as mariadb, so a lot of the commands are still the same. So um, I'm going to just do a uh, mysql-u-root-p to prompt me for my password. And once I'm, once I'm connected to the, the database service itself, I can do things like create new users. So I've got a prompt here, so I'm going to just type in create user, quote, clatu, close quote, at, quote, localhost, close quote, identified by, quote, my password, one, two, three, close quote, semicolon. I think that should be enough. All at once is, oh no, I need to make a database. Do need to make a database. Okay, um, and then I'll do a create database, my next cloud, semicolon. In real life, I might call it something short, like NC or something like that, but okay. And now I'm gonna go back to the web browser here and uh, tell it that the database user is Clatu. The database password is my password123, which I would never use in real life either. And then a database name is my next cloud. And the, the host is, again, localhost. So I can now click Finish Setup and watch it go. It, it does everything else that I need because it's got the password for the database. So it's going to set up all my tables and grant all the permissions that are required. It, it just it just does it. It just goes. And that's it. And I, I guess I know I said it's really easy to install Nextcloud. And then I sort of went on this, this, this thing of, of installing servers and services and starting services and so on. And, and maybe to, you know, maybe that isn't that easy. Um, but I, 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 I kind of have a feeling too, that it's not all that hard either. Like as long as you know the steps to take it, it's really pretty straightforward. So that's how it's done. Maybe I'll do it again sometime with, you know, better instructions, or maybe I'll write write it down somewhere. But um, I don't know. I, I think it's pretty darn easy, and um, that kind of thing is just, you know, you, you point, you, you do that at home, and then you you configure your router to you. You can buy some cheap, stupid domain name, or you can get one from um, uh, dynamic, you know, dynamic DNS stuff, uh, and point it at your at the IP address of that computer running Nextcloud, and you've got access to it. From anywhere. I mean, that's what I used to do um, to to get out, you know, to access my data privately uh, from from workplaces and things. I, I just set it up, configure the router to point to the internal computer, and you're syncing notes and and whatever else you want to to Nextcloud. It's really really a beautiful thing. 
So try it out. Try it out on something that you control, and you'll probably have better luck in the long run, I think, than trying to do it off of um, any kind of layer of abstraction, whether it's Nextcloud Pi. What I mean, I don't know what that is, so I don't know how abstract that is, but I, I think just kind of directly, especially you know with, with Linux and open source, it's just so kind of easy sometimes to just just do that, do that on a Pi, do it on a spare laptop, whatever. That's everything I think for this episode. Thank you very much for listening. I will talk to you next time. Thanks for listening. My name's Klaatu. You can reach me anytime over email with feedback or comments, tips, or just to say hi. My email address is klaatu at slackermedia.info. You can also reach me on the Mastodon network, not klaatu, at mastodon.xyz. The show's intro and outro music is by Fat Chance Lester. You can find their music on bandcamp.com or on gnuworldorder.info in the archive you'll find a music directory containing the album from which this music has been extracted until next time thanks for listening and keep the source open up but words wouldn't form in my mouth this was all a dream i wanted to tell them this thing didn't happen